0: Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, hispanicmpr.com. This is Elena Delval, and my guest is Thomas Cooper, Ph.D., who is professor of visual and media arts at Boston's Emerson College. Today we will discuss leading issues in media ethics. Tom previously taught at Harvard University and the University of Hawaii. A former assistant to Marshall McLuhan, he is the co-founder and co-publisher of Media Ethics Magazine. He serves as a speech writer for Jochen Zeitz, who is Chief Executive Officer of Puma. He is also the author of Fast Media, Media Fast. He can be reached at thomas underscore cooper at emerson dot edu. That's thomas underscore cooper at emerson dot edu. Ethics issues, media ethics issues, is a really broad topic, and we could spend more than an hour, certainly many hours, discussing the topic, so we've agreed to narrow it down to some of the leading issues that affect media ethics today, or that relate to media ethics today. What would you say are some of those key salient issues, Tom?
1: Thank you, Elaine. It's a privilege to be on the show, and to be on it again. That's a real honor when one is invited back, so thank you. Recently, I was working with other scholars to compile surveys and research of the American people that's in the United States that have been taken in the last 20 years about their concerns about media and about media ethics especially, and this includes all kinds of surveys. The more popular ones like the Gallup and the Harris Polls, Um, the more media-centered ones like by CNN or even by Fox, ABC, CBS, and so forth, but also the serious academic polls by Harvard, Princeton, and other groups like that. And if you put all of them together, you find that the American people can be rank-ordered in terms of the issues they're most concerned about. The number one issue, if you put them all together, is truth-telling issues that orbit uh, some, something to do with telling the truth, such as bias or hype or sensationalism or distortion or exaggeration. Uh, all of those are a concern of the of American people not knowing who they can trust to tell the truth and if any particular report is accurate and so forth. The second highest concern is with excess and by that I mean excessive violence available to children, excessive gratuitous sexuality available to children, but also excess that we may not think so much about. So, such as um, excessive coverage of celebrities. How much do you need to know about Britney's uh, latest, you know, incident or Lindsay Lohan's latest incident, or, for that matter, various crime obsessions, or when a court case comes along, Casey Anthony. It's smothered for two or three months, you know, rather than uh, just typical updates. Um, And so that's the second concern, uh, excessive uh, everything, including excessive advertising, which continues to grow. The third leading concern is privacy. Uh, And that's across the board. You know, who's reading your email? Do satellites cover you when you walk out the door? Um, Are there people with cameras in the stores, you know, placing those cameras, hidden cameras, to track your marketing. Um, Who knows what you're buying? Uh, They seem to when they market things just to you and so forth. Uh, Lots of privacy issues. There are many, many other issues, but those are the ones we found out that most concern the American people over the last 20-year period.
0: Well, you have certainly put me to shame. So welcome back was the first thing I wanted to say to you. I know you're Short of time today, so I was rushing to get straight into the topic. But most certainly, welcome back, Tom. Thank we're
1: happy you. Happy to have
0: you. Just to go back to the three—if I understood correctly—the three leading issues that we're looking at in terms of media ethics: telling the truth, the excess of violence, coverage of a particular topic, and availability of something uh, through the media and then privacy violations or potential violations. Is that right?
1: Yes, the second one we might just call media excess. And that covers a wide variety of, of different excesses.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that telling of truth aspect. That is a concern perhaps on online And offline, really, because there have also been scandals with traditional media offline in terms of media reporters that have been caught using information that didn't belong to them or faking information Mm -hmm. that wasn't real, and now online because there are so many citizen reporters that perhaps some people have concerns about whether the truth is coming out there. What can you tell us about that?
1: Right. I call this the age of too many cooks. I'm in a a way referring to the the funny, uh, you know, saying too many cooks spoil the broth, and that is that we have too many people who are online with too many accounts to keep track of and how do you know which ones are accurate. But I also mean by that a reference to Janet Cook, who was the woman who fabricated stories about Jimmy, the seeming heroin addict, in Washington, D.C., she won the Pulitzer Prize, and then it turned out that there was no Jimmy and none of the other characters were real and that she would fictionalized and fabricated a series of news reports in a major newspaper, the Washington Post, that turned out to be bogus, and therefore the Pulitzer Prize had to then be given to someone at the Village Voice, and it later turned out that that person had fabricated some of her quotes, not as egregiously, but bringing attention to the fact that we have too many Janet Cooks now. At the USA Today, uh, Jack Kelly had to step down. At the New York Times, Jason Blair had to step down. Um, at uh, uh, you know major magazines here where I am in, in Boston, um, we've had Stephen Glass who had to step down from a, a leading uh, political journal. Mike Barnacle was in serious problems here at the Boston Globe. So there's kind of no serious outlet that's been exempt from some kind of scandal or problem by which a person either fabricated, plagiarized, um, or deceived to some extent, and therefore had to resign or be punished in some visible way. And So the credibility at that level is down quite a bit. But I think truth-telling also spreads to the notion of, so Whose truth is right? For example, Fox is branded as being too right-wing by the people here in New England for the most part, and therefore not particularly credible as, quote, truth-telling, but only telling the right-wing side of things. On the other hand, when I visit the South, CNN and CBS are made to look too left-wing and not really giving the same, quote, fair and balanced, unquote, view that Fox gives many of the people in the South, uh, in the Midwest, who I visit, think Fox is fair and balanced because it aligns with their political perceptions. So truth-telling is not just a deliberate manufacturing of lies such as Stephen Glass and others uh, created and Jason Blair, but it also means that we have many different realities we believe to be true, and often the media doesn't conform to our own personal one, and therefore we suspect it of being biased
0: we also have had media themselves not just the reporters who perhaps the media could say acted on their own but media outlets that have been caught misrepresenting their reach i can think of one recently i think it was the wall street journal that was reporting a higher circulation number that was than was accurate how do you how do you deal with that issue How do you know where the balance is in this telling the truth?
1: Right. Well, scholars, of course, are trained to work on any aspect of research from multiple sources and also over a long period of time. And the pressure on journalists and the media now is eternal speed-up and greater competition. So the temptation to take ethical shortcuts is much greater and it would have been a hundred years ago I'm not saying human nature isn't present in every decade. there have been people who have in fact uh, you know lied and distorted news and distorted documentaries ever since film has existed. but when you have competitors who are changing the story every hour or two, you're no longer working on what we used to call um, a three meals a day cycle where there would be morning lunch and dinner news for the networks. Instead, the news is as current as anything that breaks on AP or UPI. It's immediately posted. So everyone's under pressure to keep up, and that means they can't double-check their details. So not all of it is you know, deliberate prevarication. A lot of it is just sloppiness and the inability to keep up, especially if you have a small budget and your competitors have a large budget, or especially if they happen to have a reporter in that location and you don't. You're really blindsided, and so many, many shortcuts are taken. New York Times used to have a rule about you're needing three sources to confirm something, and they all had to add up, or else you had to say their different points of view or whatever, because of the dredge report and many many websites uh you know pressing the envelope of time that's cut back you know many places go with one source now and not even you know giving a caution to the audience that it is just one source, and many more people are using anonymous sources now anonymous sources sometimes are necessary if you're going to report on the mafia you can't give your name. But in many cases anonymous sources are just to juice up the article. They don't really know for sure they can confirm the story. And so they don't want us to say that their sources, you know, possibly lacking credibility or has a hidden motivation. So they simply don't name the person due to the lack of time. So I think speed up is one culprit here and multiple technologies and multiple vendors is another culprit to make people take ethical shortcuts
0: for the audience trying to figure out who is credible and who is not credible. For example, I read a report the other day that said many people read blogs because they feel that the writers of the blogs may be partial, but they're upfront about the side that they're taking, and therefore they know where they stand as a reader. They know that such and such a blogger has a bias toward a particular side. What are your thoughts on
1: that? The more expertise you can find behind the story and the more sensitivity you can find behind it and the more you can confirm it from another source, the greater the likelihood of truth. By expertise, I mean if you read Wikipedia, there's something wonderful about the fact many people are creating knowledge together, but there's no prerequisite on Wikipedia that the person who writes The story actually knows what they're talking about. And so you can have something stand on Wikipedia for a long period of time that hasn't been corrected. It shouldn't be that way. You can also have Walmart writing its own and rewriting its own entry every day or two to make sure people get a positive view of Walmart rather than what other people might put in there for balance. That's just one example. So you want to make sure that there's expertise in the picture that actually has PhDs or is the CEO of the company or has first hand experience with the topic, that's that's one way of you know checking. But you also want to make sure you're getting more than one side. Because a person can have a PhD and still be very biased or they can be the CEO of the company and therefore think the company can do no wrong. So you want to also consult people who are known for being, you know, from the other side or have another perspective. When I read a story in the Middle East, I tend to read two or three countries' perception on it rather than just one. Or when I read a country, when I read something you know that has a communist capitalist uh, kind of thrust to it, I try and read both sides, not necessarily that I believe they're both equally credible, but I should at least be informed. So I think that's one way you can up the odds as a consumer that you're getting closer to the truth if not hitting the nail on the head.
0: One of the challenges often is that one of the sides may refuse, or sometimes maybe even both sides, may refuse to go on the record, may refuse to answer questions or provide information. And so it may appear that the report is incomplete, but in part it is because those who have the information or access to the information are refusing to divulge it. How do you deal with that?
1: Yes, that's an excellent point. You have to know in advance that most of what's going on in the world will not be divulged or will certainly not be divulged in ways that implicate people who are trying to cover up what they're doing or who wish to be in the shadows or whatever else. So, when I worked in the White House, I began to realize I only saw a tiny tip of the iceberg. Presidents are constantly being lobbied by people from all kinds of lobbying groups. There's a whole underworld that we know exists, but we forget about the CIA, the KGB. Uh, you know, every country has their version of that, as well as the mafia, and very rich people who are trying to exert their influence and buy influence. And All these things are going on in the background, and you can bet when you see a story on the news you may only see a very small amount of it. I once asked a man who has been in the White House and many, many other places as a leader, um, You know, I said, gee, I'm aware that I'm only seeing the tip of the iceberg. I probably only know 1% of what's going on in the world. Uh, How is it for you? You've been involved for all these years in many different roles. He said, well, maybe by now I see 2%. (laughs) So that means there's always a huge amount of what's going on the media either can't dig for because they don't have time or because there may be some danger involved or because the sources just won't reveal what they know. Um, and so you have to see that. You have to stay humble in life. Uh, we all tend to act as if we know things about whatever because we've heard from the media. But those who've been around the media for a long time and been around politicians for a long time and been around business for a long time know that there's a whole lot that isn't reported as well. And I think you, you have to kind of um, do your best to read between the lines sometimes. We know that in some countries, they only get propaganda. So they have to learn how to read between the lines and so they know what words are code and so forth. We don't get just propaganda here. We get multiple sources, some of which are propaganda, some of which, you know, try to be balanced. But in the long run, it's still up to us to realize we don't know everything and we have to be patient. Sometimes stories don't come out till weeks or months or years later. And uh, be as critical as you can be, gather as much information as you can, get multiple perspectives, and then realize you've done the best you can.
0: What about sources that are less than legitimate, but that are actually reflecting the truth? Someone who got the information illegally from someone else who got it illegally, As, say, for example, although there are many other examples, but this one has been particularly large and uh, a thorn on the side of many, the case of WikiLeaks. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Right. Excellent case in point. And, of course, the Pentagon Papers preceded it, and there have been many other classic cases of whether or not you're doing more harm than good or good than harm. And I think ethically that's what the question always comes down. Who are you harming? To what extent? Who are you helping to what extent? Do the American people have a right to know this? Do people in other countries have a right to know this? And if so, will that right to know possibly cause death or um, you know, extreme pain and torture and so forth to other people? And you have to weigh with your own values where you end on that. And that's often an individual conscience situation. Some people think it's wrong to torture people no matter what and other people think that if other lives are at stake, torturing is okay, and uh, you don't want to make a habit of it, but if it's the only way to prevent people from being killed, and so WikiLeaks really comes down to that, whether or not the State Department and Hillary Clinton and many, many other people were correct in saying that the releasing of this information greatly and severely damaged contacts, uh, diplomatic ties, but especially lives. Were lives put in danger by releasing this information? And to what extent are we concerned about that? And Does it matter if they're overseas lives belonging to other nationalities? Are the lives of our own diplomats? You know, most people are ethnocentric, and that's a question, too. When you put other people in third world countries' lives in danger, aren't they just as important cosmically uh, as our own lives of our own diplomats? Most countries don't think so. They're more likely to jeopardize people in in countries with whom they don't have a political alliance, especially if they call them enemies. So all of those are factors you have to consider, but I think it comes down to your personal values. If you value national security and if you value human life in very high ways, then probably you're going to say WikiLeaks was, you know, unfortunately uh, not only excessive, but probably invasive and should be illegal. On the other hand, if you're a person who values openness and who values transparency in government at all costs and who values especially uh you know any attempt to uncover that which is hidden and especially that which is corrupt or is deceptive, then you're going to lean in the direction of making Julian Assange a hero and someone in the same with Daniel Ellsberg in the Pentagon papers making him a hero as well so it comes down to your personal values when it's a borderline case
0: you talked about excess in relation to the WikiLeaks and these borderline or gray areas of information that is truthful but that the release of the information in and of itself can have dire consequences for individuals and perhaps even more than just individuals in those cases. Let's talk a little bit about the second of those three leading issues that you talked about at the beginning which was an excess. Would you say for example that in the case of WikiLeaks there is an excess? Is it an excess of information?
1: Well there are millions of documents and they were declassifying them over time and I think that probably many people felt how can you get to the core of these if there's so many of them, and you can't triple-check to make sure they're all accurate. So in that sense, they may be excessive. I think what the American people are concerned about is not so much excessive information that's available, but rather that the media will, whenever it possibly senses it can make another dollar, spend something to death, and I call that smotherage. Uh, They're concerned, you know, the American people, if you read all the surveys and put them together, You know, at a certain point, they usually hit an attitude of enough already. You know, too much O.J., that ran for a whole year. Too much Monica Gate, that ran for several months. You know, too much about Casey Anthony's seventh step cousin-in-law twice removed, you know. Um, Once they hit a story, they'll hit every possible angle. Tiger, they paid many, many women to tell their story, some of whom had only met him casually. So at a certain point, the press just goes too far, we call it, pack journalism, piranha journalism, and uh, the excess that the American people are concerned about is trying to smoke every last nickel out of a story rather than viewing the world as a whole. If you look at the world as a whole, millions of people have died of starvation. Millions of people have died of all kinds of you know, uh, disease-related uh, inflictions and overpopulation making resources impossible for everyone. We have huge stories that are out there, and we're constantly reminded that we're on the deck of the Titanic, trying to move the 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 deck chairs around. That the world is in a serious environmental crisis, and a serious economic crisis, and a serious energy crisis, all at the same time. And we often hear something about that, but sometimes we hear far more about who's dating who, you know, and about this criminal and will they be given life or or the death penalty? You know, things that sometimes are inconsequential to the greater world situation are given the greatest priority. And ethically, is that really right? Shouldn't we be letting people know if the planet only has a few more years left, you know, shouldn't that be the biggest story? What we can do about that, how we can prevent, according to my environmental friends, we lose another species every seven seconds. uh, and you know, every time we read a newspaper, that's a small force that we're depleting. We, we're not putting two and two together and realizing, you know, instead of reading about Brittany shaving her head or whatever the latest incident is, Lindsay once again being sentenced and then getting out of jail back and forth and back and forth, instead of that being the dominant lead story, which it often is, you know, shouldn't we be doing something for the planet and for each other? And shouldn't our news be helping us prepare for what's coming? We We increasingly sense what's coming and what has been building up for years, um, such as the collapse of the economy and so forth, shouldn't our best minds be available to us on these topics as the primary uh, concern rather than things that are relatively trivial?
0: Another expert that I had on the program a while back shared that oftentimes the things that people are interested in are at the tops of the rankings because in fact people are interested in them. So those many of those things that you refer to, those celebrities and their news, they reach the rankings, the the top tiers of the rankings because the audience is interested in that information and the media continue that coverage because they find that's what their audience is reading. How do you strike a balance if you are covering the news? Do you force information on your audience that they have made clear they're not interested in, even if you think that's what they should be informed about? How do you know where that ethical balance is and at the same time not to overstep your boundary?
1: No, That's an excellent question. And it's hard to know where people's interests are until you actually break the story. Sometimes if you break a story about some environmental crisis that people aren't aware of, it turns out they're far more interested in it than you think. But there's also the question of whether interest should determine news or entertainment. For example, there's a larger interest in child pornography than we allow to dictate child pornography. There's a larger interest in you know, masochism than we we market for there's a huge interest in lots of trivial things that don't become news i mean there are millions of people who collect stamps or who collect coins or who collect you know who do all kinds if you consider all the interests that are out there that we don't cater to it's just the excessive flash trash slash crash for cash that are the interests that are being marketed to so i don't think it's correct to say we're appealing to everybody's interest. Many people are interested in environmental issues. Many people are interested in religion. Many people are interested in their hobbies or their pastimes. Um, many people would definitely be interested if they knew, you know, the state of the world, and often they don't. They'd be far more interested in it if they felt that their own time was limited or their children or their grandchildren wouldn't have the same planet they had. I think that probably what happens is we play to people's weaknesses and their addictions and their tendencies, you know, and it's kind of like saying people are all really interested in in soda and they're all really interested in beer and and hard alcohol and therefore that's what we're going to serve them. Well, to a certain extent that's true, but when you begin to read about alcoholism and when you begin to read about sugar and diabetes and what comes from excessive consumption of, you know, sugar drinks and so forth, you begin to realize it's not just that simple. Just because people are interested in things doesn't necessarily mean it won't lead to problems. So we have regulation for that reason, and lots of regulation. And I'm not so sure we shouldn't you know, be really educating our journalists and other people to the wider spectrum of issues rather than educating them to the power of the dollar, that if you beat the competition, you'll go up higher in the ladder of success. I think that's the real interest is in making money at all cost and that's probably not very ethical.
0: One of the things that you mentioned in the excess topic was violence. Would you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, there was just a Supreme Court ruling uh, in which in video games, um, the Supreme Court struck down legislation that was being attempted in California to basically block violent video games to go further than the present rating system and to honor parents and teachers and others who were requesting that children had had enough already and that there should be greater control of video violence. The Supreme Court actually decided to uh, block that legislation under the First Amendment, saying that there was already a rating system in place and so forth. But two of the Supreme Court justices disagreed with the majority ruling. And I'm actually on that side, even though I understand and and cherish the First Amendment, which has many, many positive features to it. The challenge is that we don't have a First Amendment to the First Amendment, you might say, to protect children. We allow pornography, but we don't allow child pornography. We allow guns owned by adults, but not owned by children. And similarly, I think there should be an understanding with the First Amendment that there should be different rules for children as well there. We don't want children to be watching you know, a lot of X-rated material, and we don't want children. So we, we make a distinction, uh, and yet when it comes to violence, we forget that distinction, and we don't honor the fact that there are many children who have nightmares, who basically are traumatized by things that they see too early in life, or who become more violent in their own behavior or who become more insensitive to violence. We have all kinds of child pediatricians and child psychiatrists and others who have become quite expert on this. We've, We've done a lot of research at this point. Initially, we hadn't. So initially, we used to say things like, well, violence can be therapeutic. It gets it out of your system. Better to do it on TV than to do it in real life. But then we had enough studies to realize what we're really doing is creating a climate of violence, It's not about any one show, but over time, if a child sees enough of it, they begin to see it as acceptable behavior, and they begin to see it as as something fairly routine in life. And so if someone's hurt violently, let's say in wrestling, we actually laugh at it. We actually see it as entertainment. Um, And so you go to these sports where people are in cage-fighting situations and children are taken all the time, and they see people being violently beaten to a pulp and bleeding and so forth and so on, and they get into it. They enjoy it. It's almost gladiatorial, in its extent, and that goes hand in hand with the kind of images that they're being seen, which are called entertainment. You know, th- there's no awareness of the pain that that actually causes people. So, is it any surprise, you know, that violence among children has increased? Among teens has increased. That we keep hearing about Columbine-type incidents and so forth and so on. I don't think it's any accident. I'm enough of a scholar to know you can't blame everything on one cause. You can't say the media caused it because the media wouldn't be doing it if it if it weren't present in society. The two define and reflect each other. But on the whole, I think we have to be very cautious what sensitive young minds and hearts see and feel. Uh, not only parents, but also teachers and community leaders and the media itself need to be really sensitized to that, that type of excess. We've got to show some violence because it's part of life. We have to thicken the skin of young people over time to what the real world is like. So I'm not saying shepherd and shield them from everything naively, but expose it gently and make sure there are people there who can explain it and talk about it. There were children who saw the 9-11 images over and over and over and over again without any adults there. They were either you know, latchkey children or in orphanages or many others, and then they were interviewed years later, and those events totally traumatized them without any explanation. So I I think we've got to do a better job on that one.
0: There are those who would respond to your concerns by saying that is the role of parents, is to supervise the activities of their children and the access to information that their children have. What would you say to that?
1: Well, I absolutely agree that wherever there are parents, the parents need to be increasingly accountable and increasingly aware of what the media is doing. But here's the new reality. That's been a lock stock, tried and true argument for decades, but it just doesn't work anymore by virtue of this. Far more parents are single parents who have less quality time with their children. Far more parents are in the process of separating or divorce than ever before. More people are living together who are not married than who are as of two years ago. More parents have more economic pressure and have to work two jobs or longer jobs than ever before. More parents are abusive than ever before, and children don't trust and want to be around parents who are alcoholics or drug addicted or violent um, or who don't care about them. And so while it's true that caregivers on the whole should be the number one point of trust that we as a society have they're simply not in the same you know supply as they were 20 30 even especially 50 years ago and there are a lot of things going on in families that we don't know about that actually cause children not to trust parents in some not all but in some situations and so by virtue of all of that and by virtue of the fact that kids are often smarter with the new technology than their parents are and they can find an in-run around what their parents try to do. Most of us, when we were children, we found a way of finding the programs we wanted, and if not, our children have. Um, And so I know kids who know exactly how to find the programming they want online, even if they have to go to a neighbor's house or whatever else, despite their parents' best efforts. So I don't think that argument is very strong, and certainly not as strong as it used to be, although I really do advocate that parents be as responsible as they can be.
0: Let's talk about privacy. There's so much in that excess category that we could discuss, but I know that you have to go shortly. So I'm going to move along into the privacy area. I think this is an area that is of concern to many people what is going on with their information, either information that they post freely on social media, for example, or perhaps information about their financial assets or their activities and their online activities that they are concerned is being used unethically, illegally and or both. What would you tell us about that, Tom?
1: Thank you very much. I think it's a huge issue. I'll ask my students to raise their hands. How many of you know who's reading your email? And none of them <laughs> raise their hands. It's kind of like we take for granted that security is in place, but then we realize after the fact it's very different than when you wrote a letter in the old days. Somebody had to steam open the envelope and be very clever and steam it back in order to you know, invade the contents without it being known at the other end. But now no footprints are left that most of us can can follow. Uh, And so uh, if you walk out your front door, odds are three or four satellites could actually read your license plate and track you as you're walking around. If you have a cell phone, that can be tracked. Um, Many, many records are now being put together and composites are being made about us. Will we marry? That's now online. Will we divorce? That's now online. A lot of the purchases we make are online. Banking accounts are online. Clever people can put those together and call them composite profiles. And those profiles are worth a whole lot to marketers who want to know exactly what we've bought in the past so that they can market things to us and and make better sales and create more profits and so forth. So there's really a huge amount of privacy invasion going on that we don't even know about. And many, many stores are using cameras in order to, to monitor consumer behavior and not telling the consumers, You know whether or not they're figuring out people buy what's in the front of the store, or what's on display, or what's a particular color. You know those are the kind of things they're looking at. And so, if you go in the back of a store and you're an employee, usually you're being monitored there too. One of the hot tapes that came out in Great Britain was called Caught in the Act. Caught in the Act was a compilation of video clips from satellites from in the backs of stores private property showing people caught in the act of romancing and I'm being euphemistic when I say romancing all kinds of things that they're doing that they're not aware of and so this became a hot video despite the ethical implications and even the legal implications and we see a lot of that sort of thing on the air where if we think about it we're actually voyeurs uh, people who are caught for speeding or they're having some kind of interaction and uh, you know they don't know they're being videotaped, uh, and we actually watch those kind of programs. So I think there's a very thin line there between entertainment and violation. And uh, permission is a very important, very important uh, word that often gets uh, ignored these days. For example, with advertising, uh, most of us get junk mail that we never want. We didn't get permission for that. We also get spam that we never requested, didn't get permission for that. We get telemarketing, uh, and some kinds of telemarketing is more invasive than others. Some people are just polling us for a political opinion, and other people are trying to make money at all costs in any way they can and call it all hours of the night and day repetitively. And other people will call you because they're doing market research and they want to know your opinion about this and that. And others will actually try and get you to donate to their cause, and some causes are quite notable. But if you add up all the telemarketing and all the spam and all the junk mail, and so forth and so on, and consider that not one ounce of permission was ever given for any of it, it can change human lives. And that's an invasion of privacy, too. So it comes in many, many different ways. It's a striptease effect. One level after another level of privacy is being peeled away. And uh, many, many, many people are concerned about that.
0: Where is the line How do you, as a company, say that you're a marketing company, or a company marketing its products and services, or say that you're just a regular person consuming media, how do you know, is there some sort of a test that you can give yourself to determine whether this is the right thing to do? You mentioned permission, but for example, in many sites, you You sign away your permission when you agree to their terms, and their terms are many, many pages long, and they know, of course, that nobody's going to read them, and there's no negotiating power against one of these giant companies. Where is the point that you shouldn't
1: cross?: Right. So ethicists often adopt their favorite ethics philosophy when they're making those decisions and there're many of them and they don't all agree but let's say you go along with the judeo-christian ethic it's usually do unto others as you would have them do unto you so imagine yourself in that situation and you know what would your limits be if you were a consumer but kantian people who follow immanuel kant use his rule of thumb his rule of thumb is imagine a world where everybody does exactly what you're doing And when you make an ethical decision, consider that first. What would the world be like if everybody did what you're doing? And that would give you some indication. Uh, John Stuart Mill, another great ethicist, used another rule of thumb when he was making an ethical decision, which is what's the greatest good for the greatest number? In other words, if this is only good for a company and that's a few people and it's bad for thousands of people and their consumers, then that's not justification for doing it. If, on the other hand what you're doing can help millions of people because you're finding the cure to cancer, you might make an argument that it is ethically justifiable. So that's Mill's approach to it, more quantifiable, and there are exceptions to that, but that's a simple interpretation of his approach. But then every different ethic has other approaches to it. So if you're a Buddhist, you might see it this way. If you're a capitalist, you might, using the capitalist ethic, you might see it that way. Um, but I think most of us like to think of ourselves as humane and humanitarian, and the humane and humanitarian ethic is basically do no harm. You know, could this cause people harm? If so, why do it? You know, is making money justifiable if you're harming other people? And uh, that's a rule of thumb that I think most people would follow. Although some have their own preferred ethic, uh, some people have a vegetarian ethic, and they say, you know, do no harm to animals. Other people think that's unrealistic and it's better to say do no harm to people and people need to eat for survival and need energy. And So you can see how ethical systems can contradict each other. But I think the majority would say, when in doubt, you know, do no harm.
0: This is certainly has many shades of gray, the concept of do no harm, even, of course, if you follow the suggestions or the ranking methods that you were, that you just shared with us. What three suggestions would you share with us that our listeners can take away, can maybe apply to their lives, to their business practices, to their online and fast media interactions so that they can be cautious about some of these ethical issues affecting truth-telling and excess and privacy? Either on the giving or on the receiving side,
1: Well, thank you very much. You know, first, I'm not you know the world's foremost authority on everything, so I want to be humble and say that when I make this advice, you know customize it to yourself and make sure that it fits and it's useful to you. But the first bit of advice usually is slow down. People often think they're under immense pressure to make the decision immediately, or else the world will end. And that's often because the competition seems to be gnawing at their door and so forth. But I would say if this could be costly to your company or to your family or to you and your career and your reputation, if it might cause you lawsuits, if it might severely damage other people or their reputation or their lives, why not take the time to consult with other people who you trust, who you know to be ethical, uh, perhaps even an ethicist or lawyers or whoever In that situation might be wiser, trusted colleagues or your spouse or people you've known for years who have integrity. Why not consult with them, but also consult with your own conscience and go back over the facts again in your head in a clear way when you're not emotionally involved so you can make a sound decision. So slow down and then get perspective, review, get advice if you need it, and make an informed ethical decision rather than feeling the pressure of having to do it right away without all the facts and without wise perspectives involved. So that'd be the first thing, slow down. Secondly, I think we never lose by putting ourselves in the shoes of the major players in the situation and saying, if I were the customer, what would it feel like? If I were the community, what would it feel like? If I were the client, what would it feel like? If I were my colleague, what would it feel like? And really being open to multiple perspectives and to seeing the world in different ways. This is especially true when multiple cultures are involved. Often we'll you know, jump to a knee-jerk reaction about those people or the way they do it, or you know, can't they fit And That's totally insensitive, often racist and bigoted, and we often need to pull back and say, okay, what are the values of the other culture? Uh, And what are the values that this person has been raised in? I may see them as unethical, but for them, they're highly ethical and they may see me as unethical. So number two, honor other perspectives, honor other cultures, honor difference and realize there's not just one ethic in the world, but many people have their own sense of ethical rightness and they may care just as much about justice from their perspective as I do about mine. So that's the second bit of advice. And the third bit of advice, I think, is to realize that we all need to be ultimately humble. It's a hard thing for us academics to do. We're taught that we know a lot. But usually, if we jump to conclusions about things, we often forget that they're hidden facts that will come out later. And so this isn't just a matter of slowing down, but also a matter of saying, you know, I'm not the only person in the ocean. I'm not the only one involved in this. 10 years from now, what might the impact be? What might the impact be on my children? What might the impact be on their children? Um, you know, Who else is involved in this? What about society at large? Am I really furthering the goals of society or am I just feeding my own face here? Am I only concerned about you know, my promotion or my uh, image or whatever else? And uh, I think following those three rules usually helps a person get to a higher point of elevation when they make an ethical decision. Is that helpful, Elena?
0: Uh, Yes. Would you summarize the three in a very brief way just one more time? The first one you said was to slow down.
1: Mm -hmm. Second would be to honor difference and multiple perspectives. Third would be to stay humble by considering the larger picture and all of those involved.
0: Thank you, Tom, for joining us from Boston, Massachusetts.
1: Absolutely. It's been my privilege, and keep up the good work.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for coming back and sharing more insights and more thought-provoking ideas. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Thomas Cooper, Ph.D., who is Professor of Visual and Media Arts at Boston's Emerson College, who discussed leading media ethics issues.